The name's Bond. James Bond. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Grow up, 007. <laughs> this never happened to the other fellow. I'm the man. Every penny of it. So you put your money where your mouth is. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I'll do anything for a woman with a knife. Shocking, positively shocking. You get your clothes on, I'll buy you a nice train. <laughs> it is 007, a James Bond podcast. Happy 2024. We're still on air. Our ninth year on air. Crazy to think that. And so crazy that today it's just me. Yes, Ben. Woo, your favorite host. Because Colin and Noah didn't want to show up today for whatever reasons. I don't know why. Maybe they just don't like me anymore. But who cares? Because you're listening to my voice and you like my voice and you're going to like today's episode because we have a very, very special guest joining us on the show today to talk about a fantastic movie that's been out for a little bit now, Golden Era. It is a documentary on the GoldenEye video game for Nintendo 64, the iconic game that, as you will hear us talk about in this interview, possibly supersedes the movie in terms of just cultural significance. We are talking today to the writer, the the director, the producer of the film, Drew Roller, about this movie, about the uh, influences that made him to bring this film to light, about some of the stories in this movie that are brought to light by some of the developers and everything to do with the game, and also learning a little bit from Drew about his James Bond fandom, how he sort of came to the franchise, was it the game that brought him to the franchise, or was it the franchise that brought him to the game, and some very unique insights from Drew. Drew asked me some questions as well, which is always good, and it's just a very insightful chat here that really, really will bring you closer to the GoldenEye video game and take you on a trip down memory lane. This this interview is all about going nostalgia and getting nostalgic about video games, life, and everything else in between. So sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with the writer, director, and producer of Golden Era, Mr. Drew Roller. months ago, a documentary was released on one of, if not the greatest video game of all time, GoldenEye from the Nintendo 64. The documentary was called Golden Era. And this documentary has gone absolute gangbusters. It has brought back so many memories for so many fans of the GoldenEye video game. And I'm so thrilled today to be able to welcome to the show the man behind this documentary, the writer, the director, the producer, of this film that, as I said, has been going very well. The man himself, Mr. Drew Roller. Drew, first of all, welcome to 007. It is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to meet you, a a Bond aficionado and a a Formula One fan, a fan of GoldenEye. You're you're an instant friend, instant BFF. Look at this. This is why we don't have Colin and Noah on the show today, because we don't need them. I can just I can just get one person on the show, and within 30 seconds, we're BFFs. So uh, this is uh, straight away. Let me just get this over and done with. What's your opinions on Die Another Day? Die Another Day. Unfortunately, <laughs> not up there as one of my favorites. <laughs> well, you Bond. lost me, Drew. It was fun to have you on the show. So. <laughs> the silence said it all there. Now you've got Colin and Noah on side now that they're listening to this. We'll, we'll touch on that throughout the uh, the interview. But it, it, is a, it is a thrill to have you on because you and I have sort of been having a bit of a dialogue for, for a bit of time to sort of get this on. And 
kind of you actually reached out to me uh, probably a couple of weeks ago and sort of said like hey like i'd still love to come on the show if you want me to and we, we don't do things normally here on 007 we don't get you on when the film's released we wait 18 months until it simmered <laughs> down a little bit to help you talk about it because we don't want to join the bandwagon of oh let's talk about it when it's released we we, we want to get it out there because i can imagine now that the release is out there it's been out for a little bit of time now it's almost a bit of reflection now because you've had people watch this. You've had people talk to you about it. You've done interviews about this. This isn't fresh for people. I mean, kind of how has the last 18 months been for you since this film has been out? Oh, it's been uh, absolutely wonderful to get the feedback and hear all the positivity around the film uh, and just connect with people like yourself on, you know, the topic of GoldenEye and gaming from the 90s. Um, really, it's a time and a place that resonates with many people. But um, in terms of the time span that it's been since the release, well, yes and no. It's it's not not that the release happened in June 2022 and it, and that was it. We've been releasing around the world, screening at festivals, um, releasing on digital formats and physical formats, and in different regions up until now, basically. Just before Christmas, we released the Blu-ray, so the physical media edition um, re- uh, worldwide, and we released digitally worldwide as well. So you can get that all now in anywhere around the world, as opposed to before where we were only available in the UK and the US. So it was great to get those markets um, in terms of distribution, like a wonderful achievement for the film, and a, you know, a huge cap and a bow in the cap of, of the team get into those markets but we were left we were left without a distributor in our own country even in australia we couldn't we couldn't find someone to pick us up so we ended up doing the physical media release um independently and we're out now on streaming on, on demand now you can head all head over to golden era shop six golden era shop dot 64 i want it golden era 64 dot shop yes that's I it that's i was about to create because i've got it right in front of me here that's the one golden era 64 dot shop and that's where you can get it all now in any country in the world so we're still very much in the uk and the us on itunes and amazon prime and all those platforms and um for a while there we were on sky documentaries in the uk which was a huge deal for us as well um but yeah this process has been long and drawn out and um, you know, it's a complicated, um, time-consuming affair, the old distribution business. And there's sharks. There's sharks out there. Oh, my goodness, there's some sharks out in those waters. So we've, we've learned some lessons. And uh, as a filmmaker, you kind of, you know, this was a journey I had to go on to, to learn and experience the, the industry. And I've definitely learned a few lessons for next time. But <laughs> the experience overall has been incredibly wonderful because it is just I reconnect with the, that experience, that time of my life when I was playing GoldenEye with those friends around the TV in those darkened rooms in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, there's, it, someone um, wisely on Twitter said, it, you know, this is peak life or, you know, <laughs> life doesn't get any better than this. And I, and I, I don't know. I, it, it might have been peak humanity back then. I, I'm, not, I'm it's, not sure. It's up there because it is really one of these things that does give a nostalgia trip. And I think we all remember growing up listening to our parents and seeing them get nostalgic about things and feeling so young. And it's not like 
you ever hit a moment in life where you go, boom, I'm nostalgic. It's all of a sudden it's slow build. And then all of a sudden you realize that it's what been 27 years since this game came out. So you get taken back to that period there. I'd love to find out. Do you remember when you first played GoldenEye? Do you remember when you first picked up that Nintendo 64 controller and played it and then set yourself on this path to falling in love with the game? No, I don't. I don't remember that moment. I, I, I remember though wanting with bated breath for that Nintendo 64. Um, and I'm a bit older than you, you know, I would have been, uh, I think 20 when, in, yeah, I would have been 20. So about 10 you know, years older than me. You're about 10 years older. Yeah. Than I yeah. wasn't, a, I wasn't a kid. I was an adult man, but I, I saw that Nintendo 64 and the, the images that were coming out, the, the, the Mario 64, all this 3d worlds that were being created, um, and channeled through this little, this little blue box that with four controller ports, right? And I remember just waiting with bated breath for that, for that time when I could get it into my hands and save up the money and, and, and make it happen. Um, GoldenEye was, a, I think, a game that, like many people, was rented in the video store. You know, another one of those cherished memories yeah. was, was like um, you rented it and you tried it out and you went, this is amazing. And you, you share, it was a collective experience, a shared experience with a bunch of friends. And that's really what people resonate with in terms of the nostalgia is those, those memories of family and friends and connected times. Um, you know, we had that to a certain degree with earlier consoles like the Super Nintendo, um, the NES. They had sort of multiplayer, two-player games, very primitive stuff. I remember playing RC Pro-Am, which is one of Rare's first racing games. It was a progenitor to Diddy Kong Racing. Um, and it was a, just a super primitive racing game of, of a, a little um, carts, little um, remote control cars that you would play with the NES. And playing two-player with that was, again, one of those cherished memories of, of a social experience. Um, and so those are, those are those member berries that I wanted to focus on with the film. Is like this is, we, this is a time when gamers were kind of connected, not just you know, intellectually or through the game, but just they were in the same place at the same time, eating the same twisties and sharing the same bottle of Coke um, amongst other, you know, things that they were doing at the time. Because it's so true because you think about now with video games and there's still that social aspect, but gamers now don't really know each other. I know so many people who are avid video gamers, but they're friends with people on the other side of the world, which again, you can still be friends. You and I draw besties now because of this interview, but we've never met in person. <laughs> exactly. We're in different states in Australia. But the point is with Goldeneye, you're hundred percent correct. Like if you wanted to play with people, you had to bring them into your living room. And I've got those memories of playing this game with my friends as a kid. And we all do anybody listening to this who remembers it. And it's, Kind of a bit sad that it's a bit lost. I mean, things develop over life, but I mean, you know, they, those were some great times for people of any age in the late 90s and early 2000s to kind of have those social experiences. 100%. Um, it, and then look, it's not that it's, it's better or was better then. I mean, I, I could probably say it, in my personal opinion, it was better then, but, you know, my son's generation will will have nostalgia for the Fortnite days, yeah. right? It, he, and, and so there'll, there'll be a different nostalgia for him and his generation. Um, it's just a different flavor. I, I believe the physic, the physical connection, the real, 
um, company and social, the real social connections that come with being in the same place at the same time has tremendous value. And, and um, I think is the reason why some, some, a, a film like Golden Era can succeed the way it has. I've got to ask one question before we talk more about the film, just on, on the Bond aspect of it. Were you a Bond fan before you played Goldeneye? Or did Goldeneye help you become a Bond fan? Goldeneye brought me to Bond. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about this the other day because I've kind of been, I've been working the social media campaign to, to promote the, the, the film. And Bond is obviously a huge part of it, right? People love Bond in this community. Um, and my first experience of Bond was back in the 80s right? Because I'm a bit older. I, and I remember it was quite dark and um, quite violent. Dalton right? era and particularly. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Um, the first film I saw was A View to a Kill. And I remember distinctly watching a man fall out of a hot air balloon into the ocean. I don't know if you remember this. Be, be, be Blimp probably rather than a Z- hot air balloon. Zoran yeah, Blimp. Zoran yeah, Chris- sorry. Zoran yeah. Blimp. Yep. Yeah. On Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. And, yep. yeah. <laughs> And I just remember seeing this as a kid going, what the hell is this world that I'm looking at here? And um, this is amazing for a star, right? This is, I'm in adult world right now. Who throws someone out of a hot air blimp? This is, this is crazy. <laughs> and blimps and are then, awesome. I just want to point that out, Colin, if you're listening yeah. to this, we, Nora and I are correct. Even we've got guests on agreeing that blimps are awesome. Yeah, and, and that movie, A View to a Kill, is kind of, looked down upon as one of the, the lesser it's fun films. It's fun. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah, right? me too. Because it is the first first t- experience that I had with Bond. And I feel like the um the bad guy is um what's his the actor's name? Christopher, Christopher Walken. Uh, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Yeah. He is just he's just hamming it up and he's having a ball. And uh, I think Christopher Walken is has a sort of natural menacing nature to him. And so they it was very menacing performance that I felt. I originally, felt was, originally planned for David Bowie, if you didn't know that. That was actually a, intended to be David Bowie, but he then went and did The Labyrinth instead. So it could have, could have been more different. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. I could see that. Yeah. So that was my first experience. And then I remember seeing The Living Daylights or License to Kill. I can't remember which one, but it was the one where the head explodes in the License pressure chamber. Kill. License to Kill. License yep. to Kill. And then the, they feed a person to a shark. Yep. Right? Yep. And I remember just going, wow, this is really violent. This is really dark. Um, and then kind of when the Brosnan era comes along, it gets a little more palatable, right? It gets, a, it's, it, it becomes a little more, um, less violent, right? Mm-hmm. A little less violent um, uh, for a new sensibility. I, I love Goldeneye, obviously the film. And, um, but yeah, um, die another day, not high on my, my list. It's all right. It's fine. You, you're on board with the majority of people. But it's actually, it's fascinating to hear that just in the errors that you're sandwiched between because you kind of start with this dark, violent period that was ahead of its time. Now, if we look at what happened with the Daniel Craig era, and then obviously you kind of get this Brosnan era, which now is almost frowned upon, whereas at the time it was beloved. And now Craig has sort of changed that again, which I love that in the film when you touch on the fact that the video game almost eclipsed the movie, which is yeah. which is obviously very true. And there's so many people out there who know nothing more than the the game, and sure they've seen the movie, but to them it's the game. But when you look at say 
our perspective, when we're saying more on the Bond side of things and how influential the GoldenEye movie was for the franchise to help it bring it into the modern thing, it's it's just this weird kind of sandwich about two influential pieces of media based on the, the one story, the one medium. And obviously, Golden Era is capturing the video game side of things, but then you've got so many other people capturing what GoldenEye did for the, the films. It's just It's just so interesting to see how two things can exist and are so influential in, in both their areas. What I think is, is key element is to the success of the game is the ingredients of James Bond. Mm-hmm. So, so James Bond was um, this sort of, um, it, it took the, I took the Doom model and made it sophisticated, right? So it took something that was really sort of one-dimensional, um, shoot, clear room, go into new room, very, very simplistic uh, mechanic, and it and it sophisticated it and made it a sort of multi-lingual uh, experience where you had to use pace, you had to use stealth. Um, you couldn't just go at this game with a sort of shoot first, ask questions later. You had to really be measured and and more controlled like a, a, a spy, right? You had to kind of embrace the world and the, the sensibilities of a, of a secret agent. Um, and that's the, the, the um, secret source, right? Is it took a, a, the shooter genre and it made it a much more um, a vibrant experience and a much more colorful palette of, of um, a different mechanisms and, and experiences within it. Um, and without that James Bond sort of, uh, as the, the foundations, the, the game doesn't succeed. So they, they kind of, they, they need each other. They, 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 they work off each other. But just going back quickly, I've got a question for you because I have a... Please, I, I like uh, these these moments when the guest turns it around. Drew, go for well, it. <laughs> it it's, it's, it's my experience of the Bond films, right? And I, I'm wondering if you sort of agree with this analysis that the, the Bond films of... Brosnan and Craig share a similar arc. Um, and maybe that the, the final film is the exception to Craig's era because it does go so dark. But to me, they arc towards the hammy mm. over time. Mm-hmm. They start in a serious grounded and um, the director, Martin Campbell, probably has something to do with this, right? We, they start way, very grounded extremely grounded, somewhat too grounded in the case of Casino, is it Casino Rail? Yeah, Casino Rail. The first yep. film? Yep. I think maybe too much of a born identity mould in the case of Casino Rail. But they both start in a similar grounded fashion and then arc towards, move towards the Roger Moore sort of Emmy um, flavour. Do you think there's, is that... I, I, I see where you're going with it. I think the only difference really that I would say from my perspective is that given the Craig films are so interconnected and kind of this this multi, you know, faceted storyline that continues over all five of his films, whereas the Brosnan films are all separate standalones that you can kind of pinpoint them more separately. But I, I see, like, I 100% agree with the fact that the Craig films get a lot more lighter along the way. Mm. I, I even think No Time to Die 
is, I mean, when we've analysed that film and you kind of pinpoint the things in it that are batshit crazy, you know, you have a bionic eye, you have nanobots that control the blood. Like, I mean, things like that's Die Another Day levels of craziness. And yet you've got this, you know, dramatic ending where James Bond dies. Whereas, you know, even Spectre had those elements of going down there. And I'm a big defender of Spectre. It's not a very well-loved film in in the community at the moment, but... I think that was where Daniel Craig got to do a bit of comedy, got to do a bit of, you know, things like that, which is what I love about the Bond film. So I think it's a very interesting comparison. I definitely see where you're going with it. I just, I feel to me, I mean, I'm also probably very biased, Drew, that Brosnan's my number one Bond. Uh, I, I love all four of the films. They've all got their unique qualities. I mean, The World Is Not Enough to me is the greatest Bond film. It's not a popular opinion, but that that was the first <laughs> one I saw in the cinemas. I think that's a very underrated James Bond film that doesn't get the love it deserves for its story and everything. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and it, it it really is going to be interesting to see what will happen in a post Craig world. Whether we kind of continue this mix of darkness with lightness, because also when Cinerale started, we were in a bit more of a period of movies where they were a lot more realistic, more, more gritty reboots, things like gritty. that. Whereas the, we're kind the of now, Nolan yeah, exactly. World, right? Whereas now, I feel we're almost seeing the light again. I feel now, as we enter the twenty twenties, a little bit deeper, we're starting to crave a bit more lightness than we were 20, 20 years ago. If that makes sense, it, it's a secular, yeah, thing. I do believe that they seem to do this pattern of starting dark, going to to a lighter version. And to some degree, I understand it, right? Because you run out of, oh, you want to expand the the world, you want to expand the language and and the experience for for the audience. And you also have this incredible um, sort of world of of Bond that has reveled in, in its sort of um, silliness at times. And all Bond right? actors, so, all 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 yeah, of that in their yeah. in their eras have had their silly and their it's, serious. All of it. I mean, Lazy Me only had one film, but I mean, you know, he obviously had a bit of everything in his film. But I mean, Connery had his very serious movies and his silly ones. Roger Moore had serious movies. You know, Dalton kind of had two, but you'd argue one was serious, one was dark. Like I mean, it, it, you, every Bond actor has experienced, I think, all levels of that that color palette. Yeah. It seems that the, the, the producers of the films don't know what to do in the modern age, though. Mm. It seems as if they are struggling to pin down the tone. Um, and they, they kind of want to have their cake in it, too. It's like, we are the, we're the Christopher Nolan reboot. This is the born identity, guys. Look, we're doing it, right? And then, you know, then you sort of fast forward to Skyfall or whatever it is. And, you know, there's cheesiness and the, the sort of they start unfurling the, the Bond flavours of the past. Which is and, a very interesting like, to think too that Chris Nolan is, is rumoured to be a, a potential name to direct Bond 26. So yeah, <laughs> how's that going to go? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't say it to be honest with you. I don't no, know. What, no. I, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't. His t- time to do it would have been 10 years ago. Which it um, very nearly did. It very nearly did. And it yeah. ultimately didn't. But uh, I think a lot of people are on, um, on hopeful that Martin Campbell will come back for a third. He helped reboot it with GoldenEye. He helped reboot it with Casino Royale. I mean, the guys are thinking he's 80s now, but, I mean, you know. Never say never, right? Never say never. (laughs) I'd love to know just in terms of when it came to getting the gang back together for this film, when you're getting sort of the the classic guys who worked on the video game, you know, the David Dokes, the Carl Hiltons, these sort of people like that, was was that – 
a, a difficult process to kind of track these guys down and then get them to agree to come and sit on camera and talk about this experience? They're, they're fairly open and, and fairly appreciative of their position in life. And I think it's taken them time to get there in terms of, I, and, and Carl even says this in the film, it's like sometimes you, you sort of, you, you, you take a breath whenever someone talks about Goldeneye because this is the one thing that I'm known for. And, and, but you, at the same time, you're like, I'm grateful. This is, this is the thing I did. Right. Um, and, and I can sort of sympathize with it, you know, as, as a creative person, you know, I've just released a film and I'm like, did I just peak? Right. Um, will I do another thing again that has this much success? Right. So, for them, they know they probably will never. And Steve Hilton, uh, Steve, um, Steve, I've forgotten his name. The, the lead programmer, Ellis? Golden Eye. He, Steve Ellis. His name will come to me from you. Thank you, Ben. Um, he he even says in the film, it's like guys. He knew after the award ceremonies that they yeah. went through, we will never, get, we will never succeed on this level again. And it's that's a hard thing to reconcile and. So for them, it's been a journey in terms of coming to terms with, okay, this thing I am known for, people want to grab at me for and talk to me about all the time. Um, you know, to some degree, it, it becomes a bit of a crossed bear. The other side of that coin is I am incredibly lucky to have achieved this kind of notoriety and, and appreciation from a global audience. And so they're all very happy to talk. Um, and, and they just note, they just make note of the fact that it has been a bit of a journey for them to come to terms with. Um, others, um, Martin Hollis was reticent to be involved. He doesn't often do camera um, interviews or talk publicly. So some, some people like that just weren't really um, available to be, to be interviewed. So there was challenges along the way, but for the most part, they were very caring and generous with their time and lovely, lovely people who, um, you know, I made sure to thank on behalf of the world for creating the best thing of all time. I can imagine you tried very hard to get the Stamper brothers and did you get close at all? Uh, did you at least have a conversation? I mean, how close did you get to getting them on? Because that I imagine is like peak what you're trying to aim for with this documentary to get them involved. Yeah. They're, they're like a mystery wrapped up in an enigma. They're, they're, <laughs> a riddle hidden from time. They, they're uncontactable. There is no, that I tried reaching out to their new game studio, um, fish something. I can't remember, but they have a, a new game studio. I, I don't even know if it's active anymore, but they had a website at the time when I was developing. And so reached out to them there, but no response. Um, and, and so, um, aside from sending a letter to their, their old location in, in Twycross, in the middle of the country English side, there was very little I could do. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to get them, and um, it it sucks. But it's also very, it's kind of part of the enigma, right? They, yeah. Those guys just don't they don't really talk. They never did, and we talk about in that in the film. The, the rare logo was kind of this mysterious um, brand that. The talking was done with the games, never really with the PR or the magazines or the press releases. It was all just done through games. Which is fascinating. Um, it is fascinating. The beauty of them. Yeah, and if people don't know, obviously, uh, Tim and Chris Stamp, the, the founders of, of Rare, 
which obviously in the film is discussed kind of, you know, everything about that. But I, I mean, I've done enough, you know, radio interviews, journalism over my entire career where you kind of do get the white whale fever where there is no matter what you're doing, I, I really want to chat to this person. They are the, the, <laughs> the holy grail. And you kind of move mountains about it. But then at the same time, though, as I think, as you were just saying, and you sell on the film, they're an enigma in itself. So in a way, it almost would feel wrong to have them in the movie because then they would kind of yeah. like, you know, well, this is who they are. They've always been that way. They don't want to spoil yeah. it now. I mean, do you, do you want to pull back the curtain? No, right? exactly. I don't know if, yeah, I, don't know if I, I do want to pull back the curtain. Um, I kind of like the mystery there. So Would you hope they watch it, though? Sure- would, you hope, would you hope that maybe they've heard about it and they've watched it? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And we met, we went to great lengths in the film to profile them in terms of their rise in the industry and their partnership with Nintendo and where they came from in terms of the games they made in the, in the, the um, early days of video gaming and how much they were pioneers and how much they, they put quality over quantity and they, they defended their developers and, and they were, crucial to the success of games like GoldenEye because they gave them the bandwidth, the, the leeway to be able to succeed despite the, you know, the deadlines and the, the sort of the lateness and, and the, the tensions with Nintendo over the violence and things like that. These were real issues that saw the game on the brink of collapse, mm. right? And, and saw Nintendo actually cancel it, as we talk about in the film. And, and say, no, we're not funding this anymore. And and Rare and the Stamper Brothers, to their credit, just said, no, we believe in this and we're going to keep going. And when you see the what the product at the end, um, that, that, that these nine newbies from nowhere were producing, you will you will back us and you will, you know, you will see the results. Which and is- they came. It's it's so fa- I mean there's a there's a movie in this like I mean I don't know if you've seen Tetris and kind of like everything that that was yeah. turned into I, mean, I watch every time I watch this film dry I kind of think to myself like that they could make this like a version of Tetris because you're right with rare like I mean I was young enough to almost just jump on the page of every time I see that rare logo I've got to get a game like I mean I never would have bought Banjo Kazooie as a kid because that wasn't really that my game but I saw the word rare on the box so I had to buy it I'll talk about Perfect Dark in a moment don't get me wrong but like every time I saw that rare logo it's it's similar to me now with rockstar that that's my that's my company of choice i will everything that rockstar releases i'm there day one i'm buying it but it had that enigma sort of in the 90s didn't it rare and i think you you summarize that in this film of where they were they were in the middle of nowhere in england in this sort of farm in the countryside and it's incredible to think they produce such great content from this place the game was literally made in a barn yeah literally a refurbished horse barn one of the greatest games of all time that, that changed the foundations or set laid the foundations for the juggernaut industry of today was made in a barn. Right. Um, and, and you know, the technology context of the time was key, right? We were talking about the birth of 3d gaming, right? So these guys came in at a time into the industry, when 3D gaming was coming into reality, we were transitioning from the NES, the, um, the SNES era, mm. into the Nintendo 64, Sony PlayStation. I want to say that's Gen 4, Gen 3, Gen 4. Um, the 3D era of gaming, right? Um, it's it's a revolution in in the industry that we're not likely to see again, right? 
and and we looked at some virtual reality companies um, that were inspired with by GoldenEye, and even <clears throat> VR. I don't think is heralding the new kind of experience that three D enabled us to have back in those in the nineties. There was a massive, massive shift in the industry, and you know, young, um, naive, ambitious people like the likes of David Doak, Carl Hilton, Steve Ellis, Brett Jones were the ones on the forefront there in those barns creating these new open experiences, right? When we think about modern gaming in today's world, we think about things like GTA, you mentioned, Red Dead Redemption, Zelda, yeah. um, the Breath of the Wild, and um, these, these sort of games are all about openness. Well, that's where it all began, right? It all began with the games like Mario 64, and Zelda Ocarina of Time that to me is like the holy trinity of the revolution um, and that's why the movie's called Golden Era it was kind of about a time when the, the gaming world just sh- shifted in terms of its um, quality um, and the, the depth of the experience right um, huge huge mega changes were, were happening and though like, those guys were right in the trenches which you touched on it before saying let's say in the future your son is going to look back and be nostalgic for like the Fortnite era things like that at the, mo- the moment something's happening you don't often realize how groundbreaking it is because i think we all yeah. remember what it was like to pick up a 3d game for the first time and play it in the film you point out that people were sitting around watching people play because this was so unique but now we can look back and realize how groundbreaking that was because with every subsequent era, like we all remember when the PS2 came out or the Xbox and then the, you know, PS3 and with, graphics were getting better and more performance and things like that, which nowadays we look back and go, okay, they weren't that great, but at the time they were incredible. But it's just, it is, I think this film really does capture that moment in time that as you were just touching on that, how influential, because you were saying before about things that GoldenEye did, which, I, you really don't realize until you sort of point out in the film about things like stealth and that you're making decisions such as, oh, I've got to put a mine here or even just having some of the characters react because, again, it, Doom was you just run and shoot. You just shoot anything that moves or is this. Again, things that we take for granted now. So I guess that's my long-winded way of saying, Drew, that you know it brings that nostalgia back and then helps really pinpoint that moment in time that nowadays we just take for granted as being the norm in video games. Yeah, you know, there's the the old meme that I like to pull out on the social media accounts every now and then of the, of the, you know, the the dog, the dog meme where it's the the strong dog and the weak dog. You know that meme. Yep. And the strong dog is from the '90s, the late '90s, and it's and it's watching, uh, you know, a 12 centimeter CRT screen, and the resolution is 320 by 240, and the frame rate is 12. FBS and, and the, the dog is saying, this is amazing. Look <laughs> at this amazing technology and game experience I'm having. And then the other side of the meme is, is the, the weak dog saying, why is my 4k, you know, f- fifth generation FPS shooter running at 3002 <laughs> frames per second instead of 3005. Right. It, yeah. This, this kind of uh, era of entitlement and sort of, I think that comes with the that incremental change over 20 years, 25 years, 
where it's you're no longer in that revolutionary moment you're just getting more every time more 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 right so there's not really a lot to grab onto and say oh this is amazing anymore i don't know had people lost that sense of wonder and awe that they had i I, I kind of hypothesize that that's the case. It's so fascinating with that too. And, and I mean, even like the small details where you get a Nintendo 64, you get the GoldenEye cartridge, you might have to blow in it a little bit because, you know, that worked as we all know. You, you put it in, you turn it on, boom, boom. Within like 30 seconds, you're, you're playing. Whereas now you get a game out of the box, you got to put it in, you got to download a five gig update, you've got to like sign yeah. up to the store. Yeah. You probably like, seriously, I think when I got Grand Theft Auto 5, I was at the midnight launch, I went there, that's more than 10 years ago now. Rock up, I think I, by the time I got home, it was two in the morning, I wasn't playing till 4.30am because Rockstar made me download 500 different things before I could even start playing. I mean, golden, golden era in more ways than one, Drew, when it came to video games. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, those are the days where everything you were going to play, or there was no downloadable content, right? Yep. It was all just in the cartridge, right? It yep. shipped. Whatever they shipped was it. That was it. And you, if you were getting bonus content, you were having to work your butt off for it, right? Yeah. There was no loot crates or kind of, um, you know, cash grabs, DLC paid. Yeah, none of that stuff, that insidious stuff existed yet, right? Um, but you you were given incentives within the game itself to work hard to get it. The, the only and, thing I remember buying, you'd buy the strategy guide that had the cool official like magazine, yes. which was so beautifully yes. illustrated. And I mean, nowadays, yeah. like you can go on YouTube, oh, how do I get past this level? But you had to really study it because even then they didn't give it away at all. They kind of just gave you the, the basics, but there were still always other ways of doing it. So... Oh, this is just making even more nostalgic, Drew, for the good old days. <laughs> we, we, we are the old men yelling at clouds. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. I mean, the, the, one of the really fascinating bits, which I know a lot of Bond fans have talked a lot about since the film came out, was the fact that there were the patches for Connery, Moore, and Dalton in the game. I'm sad that Lazenby was left out. I feel that's a whole other interview in itself, why they didn't include yes. Lazenby yes, in there. As Australians, we can we can grieve that. Come on, I know he did but... one film, but it's often regarded as the best James Bond film. But I mean, was this something that you were aware of, or were these little nuggets that you were finding out as you were going along? And it's like it's fascinating you as a Bond fan that we could have been playing it's Connery Moore Dalton against Brosnan. I had heard that on the grapevine over the years that the the old other Bonds were included. I, I, like you, I was a big uh, magazine person so it wasn't the strategy guide per se but i was hoovering up any information i could find on in the print world back in those days um about bond about the cheats about the codes and the, the unlockables and i wanted to travel to the island that you couldn't get to by boat all these things so i i had heard that these and these rumors were, were circulating and uh, and i think because the developers had sort of let that the, the rabbit out of the the bag or the, the cat out of the hat per se. And um, so those, that news was out there before I started this project, but um, you know, things like hearing that the game was actually canceled by Nintendo, that mm. was news to me. Um, the, the story about uh, Steven Spielberg yeah. being inspired by Goldeneye, that was another one where I'm like, wow, something I, I'd never really put two and two together. Um, Cause he very but, nearly directed a Bond film as well. So, I mean, he's, I think he's a bit of a Bond wow. fan. So yeah, well, who who can't who who isn't a Bond fan, right? True. Um, yeah, 
and so you, in terms of their cultural influence, the Bond films have been massive and no, it's sort of undeniable to anyone who wants to make money in, in Hollywood. So I'm not surprised by that. But I was surprised that he he had seen that game and then went on to to make uh, Medal of Honor, the series, yeah. and produce that and 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 head off in that direction with his career and, and you know, looking at the world in terms of video games and um, you know, I think it's it's really crazy how much video games now are defining our culture in you know, you think of things like The Last of Us, um, the T V show. Yeah. Right? Just cleaned up at the Golden Globes, did really well, right? That's a video game brought to life on TV. And we're seeing that happening over and over again. They announced another one the other day was um, God of War. It's been made into a TV show. The Witcher so, or, also or, did pretty well the on Witcher, Netflix as well. The yeah. Witcher. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're, we're seeing it happening over and over again. The Super Mario Brothers movie was one of the biggest movies of the year. I think it was. Right? Gold, I think it ended yeah. up being the biggest movie of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in that period now where video games have, have come to take over which is and, still so fascinating going back to my point about how that again you've got golden eye that is off a movie and again I, th- I think the thing too that you really hammer home in the in the film itself the documentary is that this was a, a game that was released what two years after the movie which would be unheard of you don't do that like i mean you, yeah. you very rarely now get video game tie-ins to movies we've kind of lost that period of time but just to think that 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 happened and then it, it is kind of interesting if you speak to the the person on the street you say, what's your opinion on GoldenEye, whether they're going to go game or movie? I would honestly say most people probably would go game. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it was massive. And it, 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 I think it is part of that continuation to where we are now, where things like The Last of Us and Super Mario Brothers dominate culture. I think GoldenEye was, again, another pivotal point in that trajectory where games turned from crap uh, movie tie-ins that were sold like lunchboxes as they, you know, um, and that were disposable um, and that the producers of the films didn't care about at all. They just licensed them off cheaply to really high priority, high budget productions that, that um, the, Film producers and the and Hollywood take tremendously seriously yeah. now. Right? Particularly with those film the adaptations. Point. I mean, they were just a joke yeah. twenty years ago. Like you could never yeah. get a good film adaptation of a of a video game. No. And now, as you mentioned, Last of Us, The Witcher, like they're just they're, they're showing what can be done if you take these seriously. Yeah. So it, it, even in terms of the structure, GoldenEye, the game had a narrative. It had a progression. It had a story. Right. That that video games had lacked that depth in the past. And that was another part of the revolution of the, the late 90s in games, was the, the introduction of story and, and depth, right? That we, we'd gone from the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, where games were Save the Princess. Yeah. That was kind of, that was the story, right? Get, kill the bad guy, save the princess. That was the depth that we were dealing with, right? until in 1997 where we were dealing with the, um, you know, the sort of the 006 um, spy uh, betrayal 
you know, all these sort of interlocking narrative things in, Gar- in GoldenEye that was a way more um, depth, uh, in-depth experience. And part of that trajectory to where we are now with films and, co- and games in the culture, I believe. So really important game in, in many aspects. And you, you touched on it before, sort of that almost Nintendo 64 trilogy, Super Mario, GoldenEye, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I mean, I spent the majority of my uh, period of life at that point fighting with my sister over who got to play the Nintendo 64 and I'd either want to be playing F1 World Grand Prix, GoldenEye or Perfect Dark and she'd always just want to play Zelda or Jet Force Gemini. She often won. She was older and parents were more on her side, but, you know. So you're, you're the other guy who played F1 World Grand Prix. You're I, the other guy. I, I mean... You and me. You yeah, and me we were Do you remember that ad that was on TV where it was like, let's see that again because it had like instant replay? So that was like the commercial that you would have like on TV for it? I don't know if you remember that. No, I don't remember that. But I do remember seeing F1 World Grand Prix on t- on maybe YouTube mm. recently and, and just going, music. I, the sound. Oh, that the, theme. Do you remember the sound of the end? you remember the sound oh, of the end? Oh, do I ever. It was, I mean, like, because my biggest thing, and we're on a tangent here, but there's, we'll, come, we'll come back, but welcome to 007. This is what we do. As an F1 fan, everybody had to have a PlayStation because I was always a Nintendo guy in, yeah. in the 90s. And I never had a PlayStation. So I couldn't hear Murray Walker and all that commentating on it. So when they released this finally, I was I was hooked. And, I mean, I, I kept statistics. I had books. Every race I think I'd, I was always Michael Schumacher, of course. But, like, it was, it was just – it was incredible. And I – like, that to me, I maybe played that the most on the Nintendo 64. <laughs> Even more than GoldenEye. But I just – I would play it so much, Drew. I loved it so much. I'm pretty sure it was bad. Like, I mean, it's, I, I, and honestly, like if you, if you watch a lot of if you watch a lot of like ranking the F one games of history, it, I mean, it never tops the list, but like it's it's a kind of mid to high pack, like because it's I think I, I I played an emulator of it recently, and it I mean it's not honestly that bad. I would say it kind of holds up a bit more than the PlayStation ones, but the PlayStation had Murray Walker, so I mean that was kind of a bit fun, but. Was it even FIA sanctioned? It was. So the only one that you couldn't have was Jacques Villeneuve had a, a licensing agreement to have his own video game. So him, he and the they, uh, they did the two, they did F1 World Grand Prix and Grand Prix 2. So you had Driver Williams, yeah. but you could edit his name and you still just put Jay Villeneuve. <laughs> I remember something about it feeling distinctly off. It, no, it there, there was there was. A, I know they did. I think in um they before F1 World Grand Prix before they got the licensing, they did release like a one of those like. Formula One games, it was called like a Grand Prix and you'd have like M. Shoechaker and Damon Bill. <laughs> like, you know, the, you'd have those like fake names that slightly resemble the real world counterparts. But no, it was fully, it was fully FIA licensed. Um, okay. And I think there was a third 2000 season or a 99, there was a 99 season. Uh, it wasn't called F1 World Grand Prix, but we, we, we digress, Drew. That can be, that can be in a different <laughs> podcast. I, I'm glad, I'm so glad though. I've mentioned it a few times that you, you do touch on in the film sort of the post-Goldeneye world, the perfect dark game and sort of what kind of happened. Because I, I sort of remember that period, you know, I was very young, but I still remember the whispers about, oh, it's going to be Tomorrow Never Dies and all that sort of stuff. And then obviously mm-hmm. they did their own thing. Controversial opinion, Drew, and I'm going to probably alienate you and a lot of the listeners. I was always much more of a perfect dark fan than Goldeneye. I was absolutely obsessed with perfect dark when that came out. I could wow. not put it down, but I still love Goldeneye. I don't take away from that, but I just, perfect dark was always my game. I mean, that to me was fascinating, though, learning about just 
how that all fell apart and because like Bond all of a sudden took off a lot more after Goldeneye that the licensing fee. I guess my long-winded way of asking the question is, do you think in hindsight had they kept the licenses, had Perfect Dark been Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough or Die Another Day even, do you think it would have been more fondly remembered? Because I feel a lot of people do forget Perfect Dark, sadly. It's a good question. Um, I, I know personally I love Perfect Dark. I spent a lot of time with it. Um, I don't think the story, I don't know, the, the, the alien stuff, I think it just went a little too. Die another day. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it went off a cliff. <laughs> it went a little off the rails there. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it, and it, and I think it was hard to stay ground. It had to stay grounded a little more and it, it didn't. And, um, mechanics wise, um, gameplay wise, brilliant. Right. Um, it probably deserved to be on the next gen hardware. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's my other gripe with it, with it is the performance. Yeah. And, um, and, it, and ultimately I think it, it was just the right place in the, the right time. Golden eye was hit, hit at the right time for me. All right, so it had those cherished memories of, of the social experience we talked about earlier. Um, but got, Perfect Dark is, is golden eye on steroids, right? Very, great um, way of selling it, absolutely. And the multiplayer yeah, particularly. Just, I mean, if people remember the multiplayer of Perfect Dark, because you could have AI. Like, it wasn't just you and your friends. You could, Like, yeah. I remember my friend and I it would just be us on a Saturday, but you could put, I think, like up to 10 characters or something ridiculous in it. And it was just, like, that was the first game I can ever remember where you could actually put in, like, AI in a multiplayer mode. Yeah, and it was ahead of its time. And I think, really, it's the game that probably cries out for the remake more than than GoldenEye does because it was so jam-packed with with things like AI um, and, and innovation. Uh, I could see that being a super attractive proposition for a, a HD remake. It's a great point. Um, they, cause I, believe- they did the, 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 I remember I nearly got an Xbox because when they released the sequel once, Microsoft bought Rare, but I, the sequel wasn't good. No, no. And they, they never managed to capture that lightning in the bottle. Mm. Um, you know, just a little tangent on remakes um, because I, I've got an alternative take on, on the, the remake, the whole conversation. You know, the movie talks about how the, the stillborn Xbox HD remake didn't end up coming out, ended up getting leaked. Um, and we ended up getting a, like a bastardized version on both consoles, right? Because God forbid they get it right and make the, um, the fans happy and, and give them everything they want. Right. God forbid they figure it out and put greed aside for the betterment of all humanity and give the massive <laughs> golden eye audience something to cherish. Um, um, I, my personal opinion was leave it in the past because that's the, that's the beauty of it. Right. I'm so it's, glad you say that, Drew. I was going to ask you that. I was, I'm, I'm, you yeah. literally answer my question because this like bringing Grand Theft Auto up again. We saw that with the, the trilogy when they re-released that a couple of years ago, it was horrible. Like it, they, they'd done so much yeah. to it that it ruined it. And I was going to buy it, but then as soon as everything came out, I'm like, no, I don't want it because it's part of your part. I'd rather buy a PlayStation 2 and get Vice City or Grand Theft Auto 3 or San Andreas and play it. I would rather go buy a Nintendo 64 and play GoldenEye in the way it was released and the way it was intended 
rather than a because even the the one that they've obviously re-released I, I I don't hear amazing things. It's not quite the same. And again, um, I'm not an Xbox guy. I'm a PlayStation guy now, so I don't know. But yeah, I'm glad you well, said I, that. That was a question you've answered. Well, I believe me. I believe that both both the Switch people and the Xbox people aren't happy about it. So that's all you need to know, right? Yeah. Um. And for for me, I am comfortable with it being in the past because, you know, I I think there's a there's an element in just letting go and 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 there's a beauty in, in just appreciating it for what it was and not having to, to constantly repeat our culture. Right. Yeah, I would hope that we come up, we come up with new ideas and, and come up with new innovations that unleash another, um, you know, beautiful, um, experience for, for the gaming world. Um, I do wonder if it's possible to have that kind of another phenomenon, like we had back in those times. I, w- I wonder if you can have those sort of shared experiences. Maybe it's not because I'm a bit older. I'm not in touch. You know, gaming is a very different world now. Which And that's, so, I think, where it comes from. I think, I mean, you brought it up before, say, with something like a Fortnite or, you know, you look at like a Minecraft and sort of the, the games that are now, you know, well beyond our years. I mean, to me, really the only global phenomenon you get from any sort of game release is still Grand Theft Auto. We just saw it with the trailer for Grand yeah. Theft Auto 6 yeah. and kind of that yeah. appeal that Rockstar has. It's still, that's kind of it. Huge. Um, and yeah. that sort of spanned the generations. But I guess we also then still have our, every generation has that game. So as you said, for your son, you know, by the time he's our age, he's going to be talking about the Fortnite era. You know, I was, yeah. I, I've never played Fortnite in my life, so I don't get it. I don't understand it, but <laughs> I feel I'm too old for it. Even to say the word Fortnite, I feel old right now. But it's, it is we've all got that period. And I think you perfectly summarize in this film that for us, it was Goldeneye. Yeah. I, but I, I just w- want to emphasize, I think perfect dark remake. Let's do it. I'm on board. Yeah. I, like, and Cause it's, it is like, I mean, that's weirdly for a movie that I thoroughly enjoyed about Goldeneye and the nostalgia and the making of, I almost got giddy when you put in a bit about perfect dark, because that it is one of those <laughs> random ones that, if you talk to GoldenEye fans, like who maybe weren't super fans, but you often will mention, oh, remember there was kind of like a sequel called Perfect. Oh, was it? Oh, I think I heard I played it. Didn't you never really get it. Whereas like, it was just, it's one of these, because like my Die Another Day fandom, I, I weirdly am very nostalgic for Perfect Dark, so I'd be on board for can that ask, remake. But can I ask you, Ben, did you have the same social experience with Perfect Dark that you did with GoldenEye? So I had this with one. Friends. Yeah, I, I would say I did because basically the same friends that I played Goldeneye with we got very into Perfect Dark so we and it got generally like because by the time I went to high school we went to different schools so we'd come together on a weekend and we would generally play Perfect Dark more because we just I think we liked that multiplayer experience of the added weapons and like the the added, we still play Goldeneye don't get me wrong it's not like we ever just gave up on that yeah because you had people in the film saying that like oh we play Perfect Dark but we still play Goldeneye you know for another three years which I think it was kind of more we went the perfect dark route, but yeah, we still play. So I, I think I would say, yes, I did have that same experience, but then I think it got lost in the fray because at one point I switched PlayStation and I kind of lost a Nintendo route and stuck to the PlayStation now for the last 20 years. But I still get very nostalgic. Like, trust me, Nintendo 64 is at the top of my bucket list too, and they're very expensive now to buy, as we all know, if you want to get an original yeah. Nintendo 64, right? <laughs> 
Did you keep yeah. yours? Do uh, you do you still have like an original Nintendo sixty four? Because I, I, I had to get rid of mine ri- ages ago. Mine mine died. Mine ah, was rip. One mine was an abuse victim. I I remember spilling coke into the buttons and <laughs> it was covered in like deliberately or no no not intentionally i can't get past the facility (laughs) that that console just went through hell and back with me and so it didn't end up stand um sort of lasting the test of time but but i ended up getting one recently so I've still got one and I've uh, got four controllers and it's, it's just waiting for that party night. And do your happen. kids, do you get your kid like, uh, can you sort of get them onto GoldenEye and kind of try and <laughs> share that experience of like, this is what dad played. Like when I was a little bit older than you, I don't know how old your children are, Drew, but like, can you try and transfer that to them? My, I've had some multiplayer death matches with my oldest son. Yeah. No and, odd job. Uh, we've had a good <laughs> no odd job. No, banned in this house. Um, Every so we, house. We definitely, we, I've definitely shared the love of it. And he, he knows how much his old man is obsessed with this game. So, you know, he, he, he went around the world filming a documentary. I was going to say, that must it, be so. cool having a dad who's into video games and travels. Like, I mean, come on. we No disrespect. I love my father, but he's never really a video game guy. I mean, <laughs> if I had grown up with a dad who like video and Ben, we're going to America. Okay, dad, I'm on board. Like, I mean, your, your kids must love you even more. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I definitely have a, a strong connection with them. Um, <laughs> I, their, their taste in games is a little questionable. Oh, actually, my youngest, my youngest is 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 just playing Mario Kart right now. So ah. he's he's getting right into Mario Kart. He's going to be a champion one day. Hey, um, so they've got good taste. They've well, got good taste. And let's be honest, I raised them well. Probably, literally, could be a champion because Drew, if we had known when we were younger that we could have gone on to make five million dollars for winning the world championship of Fortnite, we would have bloody not listened to our parents and we would have stayed on them all weekend. No, I'm not doing this my homework, Mum. I'm going to the Olympics one day <laughs> in esports. All right, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Come on, yeah. we we all know that. Uh, a couple of things before I let you go, Drew. Just a random question without notice. Uh, can you tell me who sang "The World Is Not Enough"? Was it Madonna or Garbage? It was garbage. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to just make sure of, of your recent social media post uh, with uh, Madonna <laughs> on the world is not enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The No, I got the um, – I had to re-edit one of the images and the logo was wrong. So I got a, a – <laughs> let's, let's, let's inform the listeners. So just for the listeners' sake, I did a social media post recently that got caught fire in, in a good and a bad way. Um, I basically – posed the question that what is the favorite Brosnan era theme song? Um, And, but also took a slight jab at the Brosnan era by saying that it wasn't particularly strong in terms of the theme song. And, and um, you know, I love the Brosnan era. I was raised on the Brosnan era. That was kind of when I came into Bond, but I also am very familiar with the Dalton and uh, the, Roger Moore era and the Daniel Craig era as well. So I've spanned 40 years of, of, of Bond, right? Even more. Um, the Connery era, not so much, but... Um, Interesting. Is there a reason behind that? So just, just didn't get into it? Or? I ne- to be honest with you, I've never really delved back into those films and I, and I should. Um, it's something I've been meaning to do. I, I watched the Calvin Dyson um List he just re- he, did, he did he did he did an yeah, updated yeah. version didn't he just he? redid his list again. Moonraker I and, think in um, the top couple come on Calvin 
<laughs> I, I was, um, again, take, taken back by how many films I haven't seen and how many I need to get um, on. And But also that GoldenEye was back at number one, I think. He put it back at number one. I think so, yeah. 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 Um, and that he dropped, oh, I can't remember, but it, it basically shifted around the order. Um, but anyway, so the, this post took a lot of people um, – were, was an affront to many people online on on X Twitter. Um, they were very upset at me that I would that or that that we would um, pose the idea that the Brosnan era wasn't very strong in in terms of its music. Um, and they were all majority were saying Goldeneye was the best theme song of the, that era. What's your What's your personal opinion oh, on that one true i i kind of want to send you a link to our uh episode we did a few years ago where we ranked all the bond songs and you can probably see why colin okay. and noah get sick of i'll me. check look, it out i i I'll, I'll gladly send it to you look i again very biased i'm such a brosnan fanboy i i love all four but controversially like i love goldeneye by tina turner don't get me wrong but in my warped opinion, that is my least favourite of the four. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't rank with me either. It's that like, is the weird thing, right? It's, it's a great, it doesn't rank with me either. Like, I can't fault it. I, I mean, I literally, at the time recording this, I saw the Tina Turner musical last night and to learn about her story and everything. She does, Sadly, ah. they don't do Goldeneye in it, but like, it was incredible story, incredible woman, Tina Turner. So, made me like it a little bit more. But I, like... I'm a Madonna fanboy. I'm a week away from flying to New York to hear greatest hits tour because she is performing Die Another Day and I've seen her live, but she's never done that before. That's a whole other story. Uh, Garbage is my favourite <laughs> band of all time. I literally have a tattoo, uh, I don't know if I can show it, which says there's no point in living if you can't feel alive from the movie and the song. Wow. But having said that, wow. my favourite of the, the guy. I am the guy, but I am the <laughs> biggest defender of Tomorrow Never Dies by Sheryl Crow. I am literally the only person I know really? on this planet who likes that song. When I did the ranking, that was my number three. <laughs> that was my third. And for a long time, it wow. was my number one. But I, I think that gets so underappreciated, Tomorrow Never Dies by Sheryl Crow. But I, 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 the reason I brought that up is because I, I, I saw the post. I'm not one who generally likes to comment and do things. I, I've grown out of that phase. I just kind of old man yells at cloud oh girl there and let's move on but the, i had to comment because the funny part with me as you said was that the logo you've accidentally had the world is not enough logo on the picture of madonna from the time so i had to be a bit of a dick which i clearly see you could see what i was doing and you took it in good steed i said madonna's version of the world's not enough is very underrated i agree <laughs> so which i'd love to hear her sing it to be honest so um, anyway, but I, we great, and that's obviously on the Instagram page. But actually, just on that tangent, but like we we often talk about on this show that when we deal with fans on social media with Bond, and we we often don't because I think when they recently released the top twenty four James Bond podcast, I think we were number twenty five, so we just missed the list sadly. Um, Damn. But <laughs> to me, the Bond fan community on social media is always ninety nine point nine percent civil and nice. And even when they debate, they don't go down. We've been involved in other fan communities where it's so toxic. It's it's you just have to step away mm. from it because you just can't please anyone. But do you yep. have you found maybe besides this post? Even I'm reading the comments on this post, so Drew, and to me they seem quite civil. But like, have no, you found good. that you've like just had passionate. positive interactions just, even with the passionate yeah. fans out there? Oh, and, and it, I think I'm going to do it more in terms of talking about Bond because. Mm. They are very engaged on the topic yeah. of Bond, right? And it's it's a so so in in terms of the the tone of the discussion, very very positive. They were just really 
adamant that I was wrong. Right. <laughs> but they do it in a nice way But that's my point Like this yeah. is the thing With Bond yeah. fans Like we were heavily involved In the Survivor fan community for very, And you did something like this And you couldn't leave the house Without getting rocks thrown at you It was terrible Star Wars fans <laughs> Don't get me started But like to me yeah, yeah. It's just Like they disagree with you But they're just Almost polite about it I don't know how to explain Bond fans better than that Yeah And, and look I think it's nostalgia as well Right yeah. These people This is their Bond era Right for many of them, they're like, "No, I'm sorry, this is the Bond era," and and a lot for a lot of them, it stopped. It stopped. Like the Craig era has kind of has been a, a contentious, you know, um, problematic issue for many Bond people. Right, hundred yeah, um, percent. And so for many of them, it's just like, no, there is no Bond after 2002, wherever. You've um, been talking to Nicholas Susick, author of Millennium Bond, haven't you? <laughs> he's a good friend he's of the a, show, a, don't get me wrong, but he, he's very, very anti-Craig. <laughs> yeah, and he's very passionate, right? Very and, passionate. And, and look, I understand this this impulse to modernise everything and bring it into the modern day, right? I understand the impulse, but I also I understand the impulse to say, well, hang on, this is from a different time and a different place and, Maybe it's just not for you, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe, and so there, there has to be some kind of middle ground there, or compromise, or decision, and um, it, it, yeah. I, um, I actually really love some of the Craig era theme songs, mm. and um, in What's particular, I love the Chris. In particular, I love the Chris Cornell. Yes. Um, there you, you go. You know my name. Yep. That, that was my number two that, on my list. That was number two on my, that, well, that, that, that uh, superseded Tomorrow Never Dies because I just, I love that song. Yeah. I, I'm a massive kid of the, um, or, or I grew up adoring the music of the 90s mm-hmm. and the grunge era. And so when Chris Cornell does Bond, I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And, but alternatively, I love Adele's Skyfall. I think that is such a beautifully intricate, soulful. 100%. Um, piece of music yeah um even even though i have real issues with the daniel craig bond movies and i uh i've sort of always questioned it from the start in terms of the way they took the born identity and and kind of moved in that direction rather than staying true to who what bond was um i've always questioned the, the daniel craig era from that basic starting point um but skyfall was one of those films that sold me um, in terms of the theme song and the film itself. Yeah. So it's, it's so like, I mean, we could talk for hours about this and I love hearing other people's opinions and just that and everything and how it kind of all fluctuates. Cause I think that's one thing we've talked a lot about on this show is that, you know, we're obviously now out of the Daniel Craig era. We're, we're waiting to see who the next one will be. But like when you're in that period of that actor as Bond, it's kind of rose colored glasses where they can do mm. no wrong. They're the best. They're so good. And then the Bond previous to them is always shat upon. Because you and I are old enough to remember yeah. the Brosnan era. When Brosnan was Bond, he was beloved. He was like, oh, the yeah. best Bond of all time. As soon as Craig comes in, ah, oh, Brosnan was shit. Um, whereas, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm assuming when Idris Elba gets announced as Bond or whoever's next, like, then maybe people will start going, oh, Daniel Craig. And I'm not saying Daniel Craig shit. He's, he's not my favorite Bond, but he did what he did with the character. But as you say, it's a different era. It's a different time. It's, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Daniel Craig, I will say, the only James Bond I've seen in person. So, um, and he's got, I, go. I, I love to say this every single time. I saw him on Broadway and uh, we, we were sort of doing Macbeth. And I remember turning to my friend at the halfway point. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. 
And I said, like, he's got a really nice ass, doesn't he? And she's like, yes, he does. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I've never been with a man, but right now I'm going like, poof, that's, that's a good looking ass. <laughs> so that's all I'll say for Daniel Craig on that. Um, See, <laughs> go, go I just wanna, Let's just wrap up our Daniel Craig. Yeah, sorry, just getting tangent. You start talking about his ass and then all of a sudden you just go yeah. off a cliff. I, I also have an issue with him from a purely aesthetic point of view. Okay. And, to, and physically, I think he's he's um, tonally in shape and all that, but I, he doesn't have the Bond look. It never did to me. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I've, that, yeah, I think I agree. Because I think it's more of Daniel Craig's more of a, a physical specimen that, like, to me, Bond needs to be charming. Bond doesn't just need to be like, a hunk of a man. Like you're not just going to put the rock or Arnold Schwarzenegger as, as Bond. Like the appeal of Bond is that he's a good looking man, but he's also charming and sophisticated. I think Craig was getting that towards the end. I think he got a bit more charm and a bit more suaveness in no time to die inspector. But initially, yeah, you just, you take his shirt off. He's, I mean, he got more uh, prominence walking out of the water in his swimsuit in Casino Royale. Than Honey Ryder did back in Doctor No or Halle Berry and Die Another Day. Like, I mean, yeah. that's not Bond. Bond should be charming people. And that's yeah. why Brosnan to me is number one. But I agree. I completely agree with that. Yeah. It's it was a weird one. It was like they did it intentionally, too. Yeah. When, you know what? We're gonna subvert expectations. Which, that- on the positive side, I did draw a very large female fan base. I think that uh, for the most part, James Bond has kind of always been assumed to be a you know a middle-aged white man's fan base. But I think now we see, since Daniel Craig's come on, we've got a b- bit more of a diverse fan base and a lot more females are into James Bond. Uh, so yeah. they like looking at him coming out of the water, apparently. Go see yeah. him on Broadway. <laughs> you see, see his butt, can I, apparently. Can I, can I ask, what was your favourite theme song? My favourite theme song, Drew, is actually Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me, Carly Simon. Uh, so just it's quintessential Bond. It's just, I don't know, there's just something about it that just really works. But I'll send you the episode. You, you'll love the, uh, the the lovely banter between all of us because some would say Colin and Noah are the straight terms of like they kind of stick stick to their lane of the fandom. I'm going to put Goldfinger where it should be. I'm going to do this. Where I'm going to be like, nah. Die another day, top five. Uh, tomorrow never dies, top three. <laughs> like, I go a little bit crazy. But again, I own my opinions because we like what we like, Drew, right? You know? We do, we do. Can't we help do. it. I've got to ask in terms of two, two final questions. First of all, are you working on anything now that this film's obviously been out and, uh, you know, you, everything we've talked about in this, is there another project? It kind of, you've, you've moving on because obviously this isn't your first film. We should have said that at the beginning. You, you've obviously, you are a filmmaker, so this is your career, but uh, currently working on anything and is it James Bond related? Can we get a scoop here on the show today, Drew? It's not James Bond related, no. Um, it's it's much more close to home though. I'm, I'm working on something about an Australian folk hero. So I've, be, I've been, be, because my films have been so global in nature, um, it, it's, it's tremendously time consuming resource, resource intensive, um, to, to build projects of that scale and COVID kind of taught us that you, you can't really, uh, during COVID, we learned a lot about working, um, remotely and things like that and building projects a bit more differently, but, um, but I'll, I'll be work. I'm working, developing a, a fictional and non-fictional piece about Australian folk lore legend Ned Kelly 
Oh, so fantastic. I was going to say, at, you said it's not Bond related. So I was going to say it's not George Lazenby, is it? But okay, Ned Kelly makes no. sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so something in that, uh, trying to, to build a concept around Ned Kelly um, and, and, and look at why his, his actions resonated so far and wide and what it says about the Australian spirit and the, a lot of looking at all the art and culture around him that has been inspired by him and, and just sort of trying to connect the dots on what his journey means to Australia's identity and see if there's something there. I, I mean, this is probably a very deep question that I don't know if you can give a short answer to, but where do you even begin with that? Because I guess with Golden Era, you've got a video game, you can contact the developers, you can contact this, you can contact that, whereas Ned Kelly obviously is long gone. So, I mean, how do you start with a film like that? You start with the artists and poets and thieves that are inspired by him, historians that have read his writings, and you talk to the academics um, and and try and get a sense of the connection to identity, the Australian identity and, and what Ned Kelly influence has had upon the Australian identity. Right. So that's, that's where we're starting. It's early days on this project, but um, a common thread with my films is kind of this rebellious nature or spirit. So in golden era, the, the team that made, golden eye they didn't follow the rules mm. and they 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 weren't when they ended up getting success they they found themselves co-opted by the corporate machine right and they ended up working for the giant multinational companies like ea activision and all these sort of big companies get involved right um and it, when it was when they were the small sort of independent um <clears throat> the that's when they did their best work. And, and my, and so the, the idea of um, the sort of rebels versus the, the death star or the empire was very much, I think a theme in golden era in that sense. Um, and in my previous film, acoustic uprising was all very much about uh, individuals, individual expression um, on the acoustic guitar that was outside of the norms of what people expected from this instrument. Right. So it was, was like taking this instrument to places that no one had ever seen before and the lineage and the history of that. And very much that independent spirit, independent thinking, exploration, pioneering, um, breaking the rules. Um, and it's something that's sort of dear and near and dear to my heart is that the, the artists are the ones who kind of go where we're not supposed to go and challenge us to think about things from a different perspective. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at how Ned Kelly does, has done that throughout Australian culture. Well, if you ever want to do a fourth film, just an idea, might know a bunch of three guys who host a podcast who are very, you know, against the norm, uh, you know, uprising, <laughs> go against the big ones, always ranked outside of the best James Bond podcast. I just, I might be able to hook you up there. Just in, if you've got an yeah, idea right. for a fourth film, just saying. Okay. Uh, yeah. Independent podcasting. Yeah, exactly. Sure, yeah, exactly. It'll catch on. Might know some people. Last question I'll have for you, Drew. What is your favorite James Bond film? This question always gets me. I'm so torn because I did obviously come to GoldenEye with such 
an amazing gaming experience that GoldenEye really was this powerful movie experience. And I remember going to Tomorrow Never Dies off that experience as well and just going, yeah, Bond is badass, right? Um, <clears throat> but I, I think it, I don't know how much this applies to everyone, but those formative experiences, those first experiences um, tend to resonate the most and, and they tend to just be part of sort of DNA over time. And so for me, it's a view to a kill. Oh, it's a film that most. <laughs> I like, it's, it's not my view- favorite, but like I always, I'm a, I, it's one of my biggest guilty pleasure James Bond films. I, I think it's in my top 10 or just out, but like it may be just out, but like I love a view to a kill. So that makes I, me happy. You know what I think it boils down to is we talked about it earlier. Tone. Yeah. Is I think that film manages to balance tone. Yeah. And to balance camp with menace and danger and sophistication. And I'm, I think it manages all of them yeah. very, very well. You just ignore and the so fact I that think, Roger Moore's like 80. That's fine. Uh- <laughs> yes, that, that is definitely a challenge that, that what, the, what did Calvin say that the, you know, the stuntman got more airtime than, well, than Roger said, Moore. I mean, film. Roger Moore famously <laughs> said he knew it was time to hang up the tux when he realised that the Bond girl playing opposite him was younger than his daughter or something like that. So, um, yeah, um, but yeah. no, I, that makes me happy because I think you never hear that ranked highly and and like it's just we we all everybody has their guilty pleasure bond film it doesn't matter who yeah. you are like i am not a moonraker fan but i know people who love it i obviously am very partial to die another day most people hate it noah on this show is a big <laughs> diamonds are forever fan I, I i love diamonds are forever too but most people hate diamonds are forever so like it's we've all got that film drew so i love hearing a view to a kill is your number one because we all do. We, I, it's the first one we see. We always are very partial to it. I'm going to revisit the Brosnan era. Because, uh, thanks to Kelvin's review the other day. He, he definitely gave me impetus to, to reconnect with the Brosnan era. Please do. I believe the world is it. The world is not enough is the one with the, the Rupert Murdoch sort of. No, that's tomorrow. Never dies. CEO. That's tomorrow. Never that dies. is tomorrow. Never dies. Yeah. Which, so I need which, to reconnect with tomorrow. Never dies. I think the thing which, and I'd love to like, please let, let us know your thoughts on the Drew, because I think, and again, Brosnan defender number one here, but I think like, obviously golden eyes always revered and rightfully so, because it is a brilliant film, but tomorrow never dies to me is if you went to chat GPT and typed, write me a script for the most standard, paint-by-numbers James Bond film to get everything out of it that you want and nothing bad. It's Tomorrow Never Dies. It's just, it's everything you want from a Bond film. It's just, it's got, you know, it's not bad. It's not good. It's, I mean, it's good, but like, it's not like, you know, it's it's just, it's just got what you need. And I think maybe it is the last James Bond film that is that way because I think every subsequent yeah. James Bond film goes in a direction that maybe, you know, it subverts those expectations we've talked about. I mean, I, I, I yeah. really am intrigued to hear your take on The World Is Not Enough because, again, it's one of these ones that obviously I'm biased, it's my number one, but I think that that gets overlooked as a, and I don't get the criticism behind that. Denise Rich is excluded. But, yeah, I think it's <laughs> just, um, yeah, I'm, I've, let us know. Let us know, Drew, because I'm always I'm always Will loving it. to hear what people think when they kind of revisit. And, and the Connerys too, because that, that's fascinating. That's our episode in itself. That somebody can mm. exist in a world of being a Bond fan, but never have seen the Conneries. Like that to me is where most people start. <laughs> so, Drew, mm. that's fascinating to see what you think about the Connery era. I'll have to report back. Please I'll, do. I'll make sure to 
to to come back to you on, on all of that. Regular regular my, segment on, on 007. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> GoldenEra64.shop is where you can go to, to buy the blue. And can I just say... Thank you for keeping Blu-rays alive. I, I love the fact that we still have physical media out there. That makes me happy. And I also just want to add the, the cover for the Blu-ray. I mean, just the Nintendo 64 yeah. box art eat your heart out. I mean, that had is to, just right? like... We had to. You just yeah. had to do it. So for those for those listening, the, the Blu-ray case has a slip cover. So you've got the Blu-ray case itself. It has its own cover as, as well, a cardboard sleeve that goes over the top of it. And uh, it's all fashioned and designed to replicate the N64 case of Golden Eye back in the day. It is so good. There, um, are, there are T-shirts here as well that you can buy as well with the Nintendo 64 controller and a star saying revolutionary. I, I love it there. All the details that you need on there. And also social media as well. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter slash X, whatever you want to call it this week. But Drew, seriously, mate, this has been such an honor to be able to, to chat to you about the movie. And if people haven't seen it, see it. It is fantastic. It really, really is. And we're in this golden period of Bond documentaries. So thank you for putting this out there because we're getting some great documentaries out there on all things to do with James Bond, Drew, and I'm glad that you're a part of it with this great film. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you having me on, Ben. It was, was fun. Massive thanks to Drew for his time. What an absolute fantastic chat and insight into the movie Golden Era. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. It really is fantastic. And as I just mentioned there too, really are in a golden era, pun intended, of James Bond documentaries. Of course, we talked last year to Matt Bauer talking about The Other Fellow. We've uh, obviously seen Becoming Bond recently. We've had Everything or Nothing about 10 or so years ago. Uh, So many great documentaries that have been released in the last decade on James Bond and related media. So this is another one to add to the list. And if you haven't seen it, seriously, Go out, check it out. We've been long-winded on this podcast, nine years, about doing a video games episode, talking about the James Bond video games. We've never done one. So this is the closest we've ever had to doing it. But I did actually, just before I recorded this interview, I re-watched the movie. I'd seen it when it was released a year and a half ago, but then in re-watching it, and it's just such a great insight and really is a nostalgic trip down memory lane. And to learn about just how this game was made, literally made in a barn in the middle of nowhere in England. So that is how... Maybe the greatest video game of all time was created. So just an incredible insight. And as we sort of touched on there a couple of times, if you want to see more details about the film, where to buy the Blu-ray or where to stream it, goldenera64.shop is where you can find it. And of course, also, if you search for Golden Era Movie on Instagram, Golden Era Doco on Twitter, or Golden Era Doco on Facebook, you can follow on social media as well to check out all the details of where you can watch this movie if you haven't seen it already. just makes me want to dust off a Nintendo 64. Buy one, play it, and get involved because it seriously is a great game and a great chat there with Drew. We really do appreciate it. Now, I mentioned this a couple of times in the uh, the interview. <laughs> Given that I don't have Noah or Colin to complain about it, I feel that it's uh, free reign to play it and uh, obviously we reached the magical milestone of uh, 500 times being played on the show last year so uh that's 501 welcome to 2024 speaking of 2024 we've got lots of great stuff coming your way still on the show we're gonna have some ranking episodes and hopefully do 
our Bond actors in other movie recaps. It's been a while since we've done one. We've still got Sherlock Holmes in New York to do, of course, with the great Sir Roger Moore to come. But our next episode is actually another interview. Look at us doing interviews all of a sudden. We're getting very much out there, getting a lot more personable. Uh, Maria Lindsay is our next guest. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Ben, who is that? I've never heard of that person before when it comes to the James Bond world. Maria Lindsay is a violinist, and she is set to perform in a matter of weeks' time with the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra here in Sydney, a night of James Bond music. So the night is called Willoughby Symphony Orchestra, an evening with James Bond, funnily enough. And Marie's going to join me. She's going to chat a little bit about just exactly what the James Bond franchise means to her, what we can expect on the evening, and just talk about James Bond music and the influences and the symphony world. So it's a bit of a different interview, but I'm heading along to watch it. Thought it would be great to kind of get a bit of an insight into getting somebody on the show who plays the James Bond music as part of their profession and a real insight into just the mind of what it takes to put these great songs to light. We obviously talked a lot with Drew about the music of James Bond and it's such a very big part of the James Bond universe. So I will say right now, I haven't done the interview at the time of recording this, I don't actually know if Marie's a James Bond fan. I could get her on the show and she could be like, eh, never seen one before. I'm like, okay, this interview is going to be fun. So we will find out how that will go. So that will air at the very beginning of February. We'll put that to air just before the event. And if you are listening to us in Sydney or if you're in traveling to Sydney or in Australia traveling to Sydney, then you can check out that at the very beginning of February for the Willoughby Symphony Orchestra. So that is happening on both the 3rd and the 4th of February. They've got two shows going on there. So by all means, if you're in the location of the great city of Sydney, then please do check it out. And we'll have some other great episodes after that heading into the year. So plenty to come. Get excited. That's what we like to do here on 007. And also play this. I feel, I feel look, honestly, I feel a little bit bad. Before I go, and I think we're going to end, I'm going to, Let's end it on some classic James Bond, GoldenEye video game music. But I feel bad that we haven't involved Noah and Kyle. I've mentioned their names plenty of times. So I feel like let's, let's, I can get them on the line here and ask. Like, Colin, thank you for joining us. Just really quickly, um, just Diamonds Are Forever, the main Bond girl. What did, what did you think of her? Tiffany Case is probably one of the strongest Bond girls. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and do you ever want to return to being on this show full time ever again? No, 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 no. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. Uh, Noah, um, what did you think of this interview today? I want you to take a step back. I I don't know why you want to take a step back with that. Um, Noah, what do you think about what Noah just said? It's beef, Noah. Okay. Uh, and also, what do you think of Die Another Day, Colin? I'm so in love with Die Another Day. I'm so glad that you're here to tell us that. It's really, really exciting. I could go in here all day, ladies and gentlemen. I have too many of there. What do you think about that, Colin? Stop it! He doesn't want me to keep going on. <laughs> Roger, what do you think? A woman. Okay. Uh, Colin, uh, a lot of Colin, apparently. Um, did you have a name for you, anything at all today? You want to know what I call my penis? Dexter Smythe. Cool. Um, yep. Uh, I don't know what this one is. Let's try it. I like my villains to be sucked hard. Yep. All right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> I have too many on this soundboard. Never get a soundboard uh, where you can't go uh, along there. What's this one, Noah? I do actually kind of like Die Another Day. Oh, God. I'm glad that we can um, we can clarify that. So with that, let's play this. <laughs> The reason I can get away with this is because I know that they have not reached this part of the episode, so therefore they've tuned out. 
So if you've listened to Drew and you've never listened to our interviews or episodes before on 007, you can see why we rank 25th of the top 24 James Bond podcasts of all time. Seriously, go go watch Calvin's rankings. Much much better than this garbage. Now that you got rid of the real talent on this show, now that Drew's gone, now you've just got me talking. This is what happens. Seriously, Calvin, he's a great guy. So uh, go go check out his YouTube. Big thanks again to Drew. Thanks to everybody for listening. Close out with some GoldenEye video game music. My name is... Ben and please give me some co-hosts next time. <laughs>